All right, it's really good to see you all. I want to thank you all for coming and being a part of the Sunday School class today. Um, we will go, we'll start by opening with a word of prayer, and then we'll jump right on into our continued discussion of the decrees of God. Most gracious Heavenly Father, I do thank you for this day, and I thank you for those who are willing to come and be a part of our study. We want to pray for those that are not able to be here today. Lord, there are several uh, members of our family that are sick today. Uh, we have some that are grieving uh, the loss of loved ones. And we just pray that you'll be with them and comfort them as well. Um, but thank you. Thank you for this time that we have together to come and gather in your house and to study your truth. Your word is truth. And so my prayer is that as we open up these words, as we talk about these sometimes uh, mysterious and difficult uh, topics, that you will help us to grow closer to you through our understanding of your word, that you will reveal yourself to us in a way that we can love and appreciate you more. So be with us now in this time of study. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Um, if you have your church bulletin with you in the front left-hand page, um, I think that probably what we'll start doing is using that kind of as our Sunday school text each week because I'm, I'm always quoting one of the... the uh, statement uh, paragraphs in there and not only that but a jumping off text so today our jumping off text will be from the book of 2nd Thessalonians um, chapter 2 verses 13 and 14 and it says this but we should always give thanks to God for you brothers beloved by the Lord because God has chosen you as the first fruits of salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith and truth. It was for this he called you through our gospel that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so so as we, we look at that text, it says we give thanks to you, brothers. He reminds us of our family relations, that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. He reminds us that we are beloved of the Lord. And remember, we've talked about that in the past. What does it mean to be called the beloved? Right? You be loved, right? That's what it means to be called the beloved. God has chosen you as the first fruits for salvation. And so remember the process of God working in the world around us and bringing people to faith in him has been a, an eternal process. It started before time. It's happening in time, and it will continue on through eternity um, as we uh, grow as a family and as we are inherit the eternal kingdom. And so when you think about that, he's Paul is saying to the, the church at Thessalonica that they were chosen as first fruits for salvation. Now, for those of you who are reading along in our um, uh, uh, annual Bible study, we're in the book of Leviticus, and we talked about uh, uh, gifts, offerings this week, and first fruits is the best that you have, right? The best that you have. And so, uh, remember, Abel offered the, the firstling of his flock and the fattest portion, right? And so, to think that Paul is... Uh, calling the, Thessal the church at Thessalonica the chosen, the first fruits of salvation. These are some of the first members of the, the visible church, if you will. And it's, it says, uh, through sanctification by the Spirit. Now, what does the word sanctified mean? We've talked about this in the past. What does that mean to be sanctified? Yes, that, yes. So one meaning of the word sanctification is the uh, separating and pulling apart for a certain use or devotion. So we sanctify our tithes and offerings. We pull it out of our paycheck and we give it to God and say, this belongs to you. So to be sanctified means to be pulled apart and set as separate. And so in the process of salvation, you were sanctified when the Holy Spirit through the word of God, called you out and pulled you apart out of this world. God pulled you apart and said, you belong to me. You are sanctified. You are separate from fallen mankind. You are now my child. So the sanctification process is the process of him calling and setting you apart. But not only that, just like you said, it's, it's, it's uh, the continual process of you being conformed to the image of Christ. 
So Paul, often in the letters of Paul, Paul uses the terms, you have been saved, you are being saved, you will be saved. You'll read, as you read Paul's letters, you'll see him use all three of those terms. So salvation is a process that has taken place in the past, it has taken place in the present, and it will continue to take place as we uh, prepare to inherit the eternal kingdom. And so justification is the word when God justifies you. He declares you righteous in his eyes. And he does that through the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. So you are sanctified, you are justified, and both of those are works of the Spirit. Justification is a one-time act. At one time in your life, when you turn from sin and self and turn to God, Christ uh, not only took away your sin, but he imputed his righteousness to you. And in God's eyes, you were then declared justified. It's justified, never done anything wrong. That's a one-time act. But sanctification is the lifelong process. And so often, we as Christians uh, conflate the two, and we, we, we forget that justification is a one-time act, and God, from that point on, will always see you as uh, see you in clothed in the righteousness of His Son. But in sanctification, there's a daily, continually refining of the old man that we used. To, well, not a refining, but a, an enlivening of the new man that we are in Christ, and a dying to the old man that we were in Adam. So it's a continual process. And, you know, I don't know about you guys, but if you've ever tried to, like, get physically in shape, like maybe you made a New Year's resolution to lose a couple pounds and, and, and walk a couple of miles a week or something, um, that, that process of losing weight is not an easy process. And if you go every day and stand on the scale, you're going to get frustrated, won't you? Why? Because why? You're, you're not seeing any change. And the reality is we as Christians are constantly wanting to see God's work in our life. And it's, it's a lifelong process. It's not just a day. It isn't daily and an hourly process, hourly and daily process. But when we try to focus that small, we don't see the changes. But for the person who has truly been justified, the person who is being sanctified in Christ, you should be able to look back over your life. And see where God has been pulling you closer and closer to him as you go. And there's going to be bumps in the road, is there not? If I take a diet, there's going to be nights where I just go and binge on a big bowl of ice cream and like be, like forget the diet tonight. And there's going to be times in our lives when we we fail to walk with God. Like we we willfully step away from our faith. We, uh, we lay out of church for three or four weeks or three or four months or three or four years sometimes. You see? But the reality is, is that if you truly have been sanctified, if you truly have been set apart by God, then there's going to be a continual growth and a continual growing towards him. And his image is going to be more evident in you. And it's not only going to be evident to you, but it will be evident to those around you. And again, when we focus on the daily, it gets frustrating. How many times have you lost your temper in front of some lost people and they go, oh, you a Christian, you're not supposed to say that or you're not supposed to do that. You see, now they're quick to point that out. They're not doing it themselves, but they're going to be quick to point it out to you. And how does it make you feel? Right. I've done it at work. I've snapped at a a kid that was just doing something silly. And they're like, I thought you was a Christian. Like, why are you talking like that? Mm -hmm. You know, and the reality is, is that how does it make you feel when somebody points that out to you? makes you feel bad it convicts you why because you know they're right 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 they're not righteous but they're right and so we can use those times in our lives uh to uh to recognize shortcomings in our life every week in our our worship service we're doing a confession of sin are we not that's one of our prayers that we're doing well what that is is that is an opportunity to express that god is at work in your life oh god that you have made evident to me this week that i uh, was proud. You made evident to me this week that I was lazy and didn't do what I, you you command of me. You're, it's it's a way of professing to him that you know he's at work in you, and it's a way to get those things off your chest and not just carry them around. You see, 
And so that, that it's a very important process to realize that we're being sanctified. And how are we being sanctified? Look what it says there. Sanctified by the Spirit and faith in the truth. So it is the Spirit of God and the Word of God that is used to sanctify us. And they never work separate from one another. Right? So we need to see that it was he called you through the gospel that you might obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he called you so that you may know God's glory and his goodness and his mercy and his faith. And so our creedal statement for today as we continue to talk about uh, the decrees of God, um, the plan of God, if you will, God's eternal decree, his plan for all of creation. It says, by his eternal and completely free purpose of his will, right? That's something we pray. Uh, your will be done. God has both appointed the elect to glory <clears throat> and foreordained all the means through which they will be saved. The elect who are fallen in Adam are redeemed by Christ and are effectually called to faith in Christ by his spirit working at the appropriate time. The elect are justified, adopted, sanctified, and kept by his power through faith to salvation. The elect are the only people who are redeemed by Christ, effectually called, justified, adopted, sanctified, and saved. And there below that, you see the scriptural references to back up what this statement is saying. These people are not just making these statements just to convince you that they know what the truth is. They're making this statement to point you to the truths of scripture so that you can understand for yourself. So let's break that creative statement down. I want to give you uh, uh, a parable or a illustration that was shown to me this week that I found very helpful and then we're going to go back to Romans 9 and work our way through Romans 9 today so by his eternal and completely purpose of his will God has both appointed the elect to glory and foreordained all the means through which they will be saved what uh it's uh chapter 3 verse 6 it's on page 17 all right, so what does it mean to say by his eternal and completely free purpose of his will? This is what God wants, right? This is God's will to appoint the elect to glory, and he foreordained all the means through which they will be saved. What does that mean to say that God has foreordained all the means through which they will be saved? He's established them. He's decreed how it will happen. So what are the means to our salvation? What are the... The first one is to believe it on His Son, Jesus Christ. Okay, that's something that we do. You're exactly right. What are the means that God uses to bring His salvation to us? There's two... The Word. The Word, good. Very good. And and we've already said the other one too. The Word and His Spirit. Those are the means by which he brings us to salvation. All right. So what it's saying is, is God has all foreordained that his word, his promise, his truth will work in your life. God has foreordained that his spirit is going to work in your life. So what are some of the ways that you can look back on your life now and see that God foreordained your salvation? Give me an example of a way that you can see where God used his word and spirit in your life. He uh, brought uh, people in my life. Very good. That's exactly right. They believed in the word and they could give me the meaning of uh, what I was to be expected to do for God's salvation. Amen. God made sure that the right people got into your life so that you could hear the promises of God. So every week when I stand in this pulpit, I am declaring his truth to the congregation, right? And the reality is, is that I can point back to my grandfathers. One of them was a Baptist preacher and one of them was a Methodist deacon who made sure that I was in church every week, going to Sunday school and hearing the promise and word of God. One was a mom who loved uh, hymns and music and used to play the piano at home and sing hymns all the time. And I remember sitting there and reading the words of those hymns, right? And a lot of the lyrics of those uh, hymns have scripture in them. And so he, he brought 
uh, youth uh, pastors and youth directors into my life that made sure as a young man that I heard the truth. And so there was a whole world of sin and fallenness all around me all the time, and I was engulfed in it. But God in his foreordained will made sure that the right people got to me and allowed me to hear that truth. Now, just as we learned last week when we were talking about Jesus calling his disciples, God foreordained the disciples. He knew who his disciples were going to be. He came and he called them. And not only that, he prayed and asked God to give them the memory to recall what he had taught them so that they could teach it to others. So God was preparing those disciples to go out and do his will. Did they always do it? No. <laughs> no, they're just like us. But they screw up. They put their foot in their mouth. They're proud. They're ignorant. They, we, we mess up all the time. But God, um, the, the, the term, the, the cliche statement is, is that God can draw a straight line yeah. with a crooked stick. Yeah. All right. God can use broken and busted folks to bring his will about. And so what we see here is that God made sure he foreordained the means whereby we will be saved. So what are the means? The preaching of the word, the reading of the word, the study of the word, and the power of the Holy Spirit. And God makes sure that all of those things take place in the life of the elect. His chosen people will hear his word and they will believe him. That does not negate the fact that as his child, I am commanded to share those promises with others. And as his child, I'm commanded to pray for the lost. I still have that responsibility. Remember, all through this, this topic that we're talking about, God is sovereign. He's in control. But I'm responsible. A part of his sovereignty was foreordaining the prayers that I pray and the preaching that I preach, the teaching that I teach. And it's the same way in your lives as well. God has foreordained every single person that's going to step in your path in the coming week. But you are responsible to do with that what he commands you to do, which is to be a light unto the world. So it never, so it's not like I can say, oh, well, God foreordained all of the elect and whoever's going to be saved is going to be saved. I don't have to do anything. No. Yeah, I'll just go fishing. No, what did he say? I'm going to make you fishers of men. Yes. Go fish. Yes. You see? So there is responsibility on our end. It's not like just God just says, okay, I'll take care of this. You just sit back and, you see? But even my efforts as his child, my willingness that he has given me to walk in his truth is a requirement in my life. He commands that of me. And so it sets me free to know that he is in control. But it also constrains me that a part of his control is me doing what he's commanded me to do. You see it? You see that balance in between God being sovereign and me being responsible? I can be responsible, and not only that, I can share his word and never back down away from it and never be uh, dissuaded or disgruntled or disheartened. You see? I know that the, that he has foreordained that there was going to be five people in our Sunday school class today. Amen. And that's okay. He made sure that we were going to be here and that we were going to hear what was being taught. And I don't have to worry and feel sad for the folks that didn't make it because of their willfulness not to be here. Or some people were just simply sick. Angela's sick. Uh, Loretta's grieving. Like there's reasons why people aren't here. And that's okay. But God has foreordained everything that's going to take place, and that should give me hope. It should give me peace to know that he's in control. He holds my future. He is the one that controls everything, and I can rest in that. So it says, the elect who are fallen in Adam are redeemed by Christ and effectually called to faith in Christ. Now, that word effectually called, that's a very important term. What do you think it means? What does it mean when something is effectual? It works. That's exactly right. If I've got a uh, 
Well, this week at work, I, I pulled a muscle in my shoulder lifting something. I don't know when I did it or either I slept wrong and had a bad pain in my neck. Well, I went and took two BC powders with extra strength muscle reliever, and they were effective. About an hour later, I didn't feel that pain. Now, when I got home later that night, it came back. But for a moment, that aspirin was effectual to stop that pain. So when we think about the call of God, the call of God is general. Who am I to proclaim it to? Everyone. So the call is general. But the call is also effectual. What does that mean? It works. Now, does that mean that everyone that the call goes to is going to come to Christ? No, No, because it is only effectual to who? The elect. The the ones that he has chosen are the ones that are going to be truly drawn to him. See? So, I share it with who? All. The general call goes to all. The gospel goes to everyone. And is it my business to determine who's going to believe it and who's not? Is it my business to save someone? That's God's business. And he's doing it every day. That call is going out to the world. And through that general call, the effectual call is taking place and a people are coming to him. I do not know who they are. Right. Uh, Spurgeon said it this way. If God put a pink, uh, a yellow stripe on the back of every elect person, I'd be running around in my congregation, flipping up the coattails of all the men in my congregation to see who are the real ones. That's not our business. Our business is to be faithful, to proclaim the truth and live the truth in our lives. That is the general call. Then the effectual call is when he pulls his people to himself. There's a very close parallel to natural revelation and specific revelation in that in there. Natural revelation is the the sun, moon, stars, birds, bees, flowers, trees, all of creation speaks to man and lets him know that there's a God. But there is a specific uh, revelation through his word and through his spirit. So. It says that uh, the elect are justified, adopted, sanctified. Now, we talked about that word sanctified. And kept by his power through faith to salvation. How many of you have ever heard the term eternal security of the believer? Right? What does that mean? Once saved, always saved. That's the way we Southern Baptists like to say it. Once saved, always saved. Right? Okay. Well, the reality is this very true. If God saves you, you are saved, you, are, you have been saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. But it's not because of you going and giving your heart to Jesus that you can rest in eternal security. It's because he gave you a new heart. The, evident, the fact that he is at work in you yes. is the assurance that you need. Because he who began a good work in you will continue it until the day of salvation. That's what the scripture says. He who has began a good work in you will continue it until the day of salvation. Now you say, wait a minute, now I'm already saved. But remember, Paul talks about salvation being you have been saved, you are being saved, that's sanctification, and you will be saved. That's actually the last step in our salvation, which is glorification. So justification, you have been saved. Sanctification, You are being saved. Glorification, you will be saved. So what does glorification look like to the believer? When will we be truly glorified? When we get to heaven. Yes, when we, well, not, that, yes, that will be being glorified when we get to heaven. But not only that, we and he are coming back to judge the earth, right? And after he judges the earth and separates the sheep from the goats and throws the goats in hell and and gives the sheep what? Their inheritance, what will we have? We will have new bodies and we will have a new heavens and a new earth. And we will never feel the pains and sufferings of sin anymore. We will never have the inclinations to sin anymore. And we will be his eternal people forever and ever. All who hears his words. Yep. Yep, my sheep know my voice. That's what he said. So think about that. You have been saved. You are being saved. That's sanctification. And you will be saved. That's the, um, the Puritans used to call it the beatific vision. The beatific vision. The hope that I have in what's coming. 
It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be undescribable. And so if he has justified you, he will sanctify you and you will be glorified. And it's a certainty because God is at work and he will work and he will continue to work. All right. Now, with that said, um, let's look back now at our text that we jumped off from and see if we can apply that to what we've read today. Look what it says. We should always give thanks to God for you. Um, uh, Roy, we're, we're in the uh, I'm looking in the bulletin at the. I don't know if you have a bulletin with you, but we're looking at that text. We always give thanks to you, God, for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you as the first fruits for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith and truth. It was for this that he called you through our gospel that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see what Paul's saying there? Do you see how it talks about how God is the one that has called us and saved us? But that man is the one that said our gospel. Paul said our gospel. Well, who is our? The people of God. It's the good news that we have to share with others. So not only has God called a people to himself, but he uses people to call people to himself. God is sovereign. Man is responsible. And so I don't have to shy away from that word predestination or election because they're not ugly words the reality is that god is sovereign and i am responsible yes and god has foreordained everything that's going to take place and i can rest in that now i want to give you an illustration to help you to understand i I just read that this week and it was really to me it rang a bell um we talked uh, last week about the fact that some people Uh, are called to salvation and some people God simply just leaves them in sin so the reality is is how many of Adam's children truly do deserve hell Adam's kids all 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 have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God the wages of sin is death so how many of us in our fallen state deserve hell and death all all But God reaches down into a world full of people who deserve death. And it says the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what is salvation? It is a gift. How much does a gift cost? Nothing. What do you do to earn it? Nothing. You simply receive it. All right. So let's use that. I actually put that verse out on our marquee out on the street this week. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Wages are what we earn. A gift is what we receive. And every single human being that drew breath in their nose, every single human being ever created is either going to get the wages of sin, which is death, or the gift of God, which is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So when you were saved, when you became a believer, it was because God reached down into a world full of people who deserve the wages of sin, which is death, that deserve his wrath and his eternal condemnation. And he plucked you out of that people and said, no, I love you too much to keep, you, keep letting you live that way. And he saves us from that condemnation. He gives us the gift of eternal life. Now. So last week we were talking about the fact how God literally doesn't call some people to salvation effectually. The call goes to all, but he only pulls out those people that he has chosen. Yes. Yes. What would you uh, call the people that uh, God uh, does not? They're called reprobate. God turns them over to their own desires. It's a great point. And we're going to talk about that in Romans 9. The reason he doesn't pick them up is because he's God and he's the potter and he can do with the clay what he wishes. They have a hard heart. And what he does is... He knows that they're not going to change. Well, that's true. He does know that they're not going to change. But his his decision is not based on what they decide. His decision is based on who he is. Now, here's the illustration. Because immediately we're going to start getting the hair up on the back of our neck going, wait a minute. You mean to tell me that there are actually people that God just simply lets go? Yes. 
Yeah, he turns them over to their own desires. Like we talk about free will. Well, the free will of fallen man is to run as far away from God as he can. And God turns them over to their own desires. Now, so we say, some people say, well, that's not fair. All right, well, let me give you an illustration. Let's say that we have a judge. And this judge is required to pass sentence on a guilty person. The person comes into the courtroom, they have all the video evidence, all the DNA evidence. We have a hundred witnesses that saw him do it. He confesses and says, I'm guilty of what I have done. Now the judge has to pass sentence on him. What is the judge going to use for his standard to pass sentence on him? What's the standard for making that judgment? All the evidence. Well, the, the evidence is the cause for his judgment. The law. The judge has to do what the law says. And the law says that let's just say he murdered someone. You give a, you take a life. Your life gets taken. All right. So the judge, by decree of the law, has to pass sentence on this man who is guilty. All right. Now, if he says, uh, I declare that you are guilty of murder and you will go to the electric chair. Is the judge being just? Yes. Yes. Very much so. And the law backs up. He's All he's doing, his justice means he's enforcing what the law says. All right, now, what if he says, you know what, young man, um, I just put $500,000 down on the Kansas City Chiefs to win the Super Bowl, and I just won $1.5 million. I'm in a good mood today. I'm going to let you go. You're free. Uh, sentence wave. Uh, you're free to go. Is that fair? No. Why? Because he's uh, putting he what is not to what should have been. Okay. Is the man who was the murderer, is he happy with that declaration? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he gets all free. He don't have to pay but what about the family of the victims that are in that courtroom that just heard that? What are they going to say? That's not fair. He deserves to die. You're not being fair. Are they true in saying that? Yeah. What if that person convicted of murder was his own son? And he said, you my boy and I know you didn't mean it so I'm going to let you slide. Is that fair? No. It's not fair. So the reality is, is that when we think about the things of God, the deep things of God, and we start saying that's not fair, what we're saying of God, the judge, is you're not just. You're being biased. All right. So is God being biased towards the elect in choosing them? And uh, not choosing others. Is he showing a bias towards the elect? No. He's showing mercy. Now here's the difference. Let's just say that that judge convicts that man of that sin and then goes out and takes that $1.5 million that he just won on the Kansas City Chiefs in the Super Bowl and goes out and gives $1 million of it to the Baptist uh, student Fellowship Fund of Colleges over the United States. He gives $1 million of it to a uh, uh, charity of his delight. Is he free to do that? Is he fair in doing that? Is that fair? It's his. He can do with it what he pleases. Is it unfair to the Methodist Student Union? It's not unfair. He can, he is free to give it to who he wishes. And the Methodist student union can't scream, that's not fair, you gave them a million dollars. Why? Because it's his to give. That is exactly how God's grace, his mercy, and his justice works. He will never let anyone slide on their violations of his Holy law. All are guilty. Yes. But 
when it comes to his chosen people, what he did of his own free will and free pleasure was take the justice, the judgment that they deserved, and instead of putting it on them, he put it on his son. And because of what his son took on the cross, you are now free from that guilt. And have you ever thought at one time in your life when God saved you saying, well, that's not fair? No. But you know what you probably did think? I, I've thought it in my life, and I would think you have to. God, I don't deserve this goodness. Amen. I deserve to be the one being judged. Yes. And that's how beautiful his grace. That's the expression of his grace and how beautiful it is. So you see how that works? We, 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 we'll say, wait a minute now. So... The premise behind that statement, that's not fair, is that God, in order to be a just God, must give every single person the same thing. Yes. And that's simply not the case. He's God, and he can put his mercy wherever he wishes. Yes. And it's not up to the clay to scream back at the potter and say, why did you make me this way? You see, the man convicted of that murder has no excuse and he has no way to reply back to the judge after he sends him to death. That's not fair. Okay, so when we think about judgment day on judgment day on the day of the Lord, God will openly declare who the sheep and who the goats are. And where will all of the goats go? All the goats. To hell. And where will all of the sheep go? To heaven. And the judgment of all of those goats are going to be the perfect and eternal expression of his justice as judge. You are guilty and this is what you deserve. And every single one of the sheep that he now says, come in and inherit the, king, uh, the eternal kingdom that I have prepared for you since the foundation of the world. For every one of them, there's not a single one of them that's going to be able to say, I deserve this. This is my right. I'm better than those goats. Yes. Not a single one of them is going to be able to say that, are they? Because it's all of God's mercy. See? So let, we're not going <laughs> to, again, we're not going to have time to get into Romans 9 too deeply. But I do want to look at, at something we talked about last week. And let's go back to it again. Um, this is Romans 9. And let's look at, we got seven minutes, we got time. Let's, let's start with verse 6. It is not as though the word of God has failed. Well, we really need to start in verse 1. There's no way to get through this without going through the whole context. Look at verse 1 of Romans 9. Paul says, I'm telling you the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in, my Holy, in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could, if I could wish that I myself were accursed and separated for Christ, from Christ, for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. So who are Paul's brothers, his kinsmen according to the flesh? His disciples. No, the, his, the, his brothers according to the flesh. Who is your brother according to the flesh? Anyone. No, not anyone. Who You got brothers. What are their names? Okay, those are your brothers according to the flesh. Am I your brother, Roy? Yes, your brother. In Christ, in spirit. Yes. But Paul is saying right here, I have a, a, my heart breaks for my brethren according to the flesh. Who is he talking about? Biological Yeah, and who would that be in this sense? He's from the tribe of Benjamin. Yes, okay. So the Benjamites... And Benjamin is from the tribe of Jacob, the Israelites. And Jacob is from the tribe of Isaac, and Isaac is from the tribe of Abraham. 
So Paul's heart is breaking right now for the Jews, for his people. He said, I wish if God would let me, I would take the curse upon myself for them so that they could be saved. That's how much he loved them. We talked about this the other day. How many of us have lost friends and loved ones that we know did not know the Lord? And it breaks our heart to know that they're eternally going to be separated from God and us. It breaks our heart, does it not? And that's what Paul's saying here. He said, I wish that I myself were a curse separated from Christ for the sake of my kidmen, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, the glory of the covenants, right? The Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, right? The temple services and the promises. Who are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh who is God over all blessed forever and ever. It says who is from Christ who is from their flesh. From the fathers Christ according to the flesh comes from them. What does that mean to say? Christ according to the flesh comes from the Israelites. What does that mean? He's Jewish. Jesus is Jewish. So Paul is saying my heart breaks for my people. They had everything. They had the promises. They had the covenants. They had the temple. They had the laws. God gave. He adopted them and separated from the rest of the world and made them a special people. The Messiah come from their people. Yes. But look what he says in verse 6. So what? Ha- why is he crying? Why is he weeping? Because most of the Israelites rejected the Messiah when he came. He came to his own. His own people did not receive him. But to all of those who did receive him, he gave them the right to become children of God. And so Peter, James, John, Paul, they're all Israelites who truly were physical Israelites, but they were also spiritually children of God. And so what he's going to do here in the next few verses is he's going to say, just because you are of the seed of Abraham physically does not mean that you are of the seed of Abraham spiritually. Right? Just because you and your brothers are physical brothers, yes. that does not mean that you are both Christians. Right. You see? What makes you a Christian is when God comes in and adopts you and gives you a new heart when he saves you. Yes. Now, I do I, I have physical brothers that are physically saved, so we are both temporal brothers and, and biologically by our DNA we're brothers, but spiritually we're also brothers eternally. You see how that works? And so he says this, but it is, verse 6, it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who descended from Israel. What is it? Uh, which one of the disciples was not Jewish? All of his disciples were Jewish. Um, Luke, who followed Paul and wrote Luke and Acts, was, was Greek. But the rest of it, all of his disciples were Jewish. Yeah, Luke is not considered a, a, a disciple or an apostle, but he is the writer of Luke and Acts. Okay. He followed Paul around. He followed Peter and then he followed Paul around. But so, he wasn't the blood. He wasn't a Jew. He was Gentile. He's the only Gentile writer in the New Testament, right. matter of fact. And everyone in the Old Testament was Hebrew okay. or Jewish. Yes. Yep. So, again, look back up at um, verse 4. Who are the Israelites to whom the adoption of the sons, the glory of the covenants, the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises. So where, who had all of the promises? Who had all the law? Who had all the word? The Jewish people. Yes. And Paul is saying, my heart's breaking for them. God gave them everything and they still rejected him. But then in verse 7 and this verse 6, this is something you need to wrestle through in your mind. They are not all Israel who descended from Israel. Yes. So there's two different Israels be t- talking about right here. The physical Israelite right. and the spiritual Israelite. Right. So they are also children because, nor are they children because they are Abraham's seed, but through Isaac your seed will be named. That is the, ch- now watch this verse 8. This is super important. That is the children of the flesh are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are considered as seed. It's the ones who have the promise on them. Now watch what he does next. 
For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. He's going back to the Old Testament and talking about when God told Abraham his wife was going to have a kid. And not only this, but there was Rebecca, that's Isaac's wife. All of this we're learning in our Bible studies on Mondays if y'all come join us for those, right? Not only this, but there was Rebecca when she conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that the purpose of God according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. So watch this. He talks about Abraham, and Abraham has a seed. And that seed is his son. son. But he's talking about the promised seed. And who did he say the promised seed is? Isaac. The youngest. The The oldest was who? Ishmael. With Hagar. Remember he went into Hagar and they had a son. So Hagar is the seed of Abraham. But he's not a child of promise. So what you see there is you have one father, and he gives his seed to two women, yes. and God chooses one of those who is what? Isaac, and he rejects one, Ishmael. Now watch this. So that's one father, two baby mamas, if you will. Yes. Well, watch this. And not only this, but there was Rebecca, when she conceived twins... By one man. So now we got one dad, one mom, two babies in the same womb. Yes. And look what he says. Though the twins were not born, neither one of them had done anything good or bad, so that the purpose of God according to his choice would stand, not because of works, because of him who calls. He said the older will serve the younger. So before they were ever before they ever had a chance to use their free will, God said that older boy is going to serve the younger boy. The younger boy is going to rule over the older boy. Yes. One daddy, one mama, two babies in the same womb, and God chose one of them and rejected the other one. Right. Look what it says. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Was God unrighteous to choose and give the gift of promise to Jacob and not give the gift to Esau? No, it's his right to do what he wants to do. Look what he says next. And then we'll finish. Verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? May it never be. For he said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Yes. So then it does not depend on the one who wills or the one who runs, yes. but on God who has mercy. Amen. Now that is as clear a statement as you can get. It, that, so it, that means your salvation, the promise, what it means. So then the promise does not depend on the one who wills or the one who runs. It depends on God who has mercy. So why do you have the promise of God? Why do you have salvation? Because God showed his mercy to you. And when did he know he was going to show that mercy to you? Before time. And was it based on the fact that he looked down through time and said, oh, you're going to be a believer, so I'm going to give you mercy. No, because if he based his gift on what he saw you doing, then it's a reward and not a gift. You see how that works? If God gave you grace because he looked down through time and saw that you were going to believe, then he's rewarding you for your belief. But that wasn't the way. He didn't give Jacob grace before he uh, did what he did. Well, his grace was upon Jacob's life the whole time. Jacob struggled and Jacob screwed up and Jacob was a train wreck. But because he was a child of promise, God continued to work in that man's life until he brought about the birth of Judah. Because through the birth of Judah... In other words, God knew what Jacob did 
That's exactly, that's all right. And that's exactly what we're saying. God knows who his children are and me and you do not. That's his work. It's his work to do those things. What is our responsibility? To share these promises and to share these truths with the world around us. That was what the children of Israel were commanded to do. The children of Israel were commanded to be a light to the world so they could know God. And they, instead of using that light to shine it on God, they use it to shine upon themselves. And we as Christians can do the same thing. Oh, look at me. Look how much better I am than you are. I go to church every week. I get stars from Sunday school. I say my prayers. Uh, I, I love everybody. Look at me. Look at me. Look at me. And the reality is the point of our salvation is to point to who? God. Look at him. But for the grace of God, there goes I. And we'll close with that. So I hope that you'll take some time this week. Read Romans chapter 9 and work that process out through your mind as well. And see what Paul is trying to prove to us. Next week, we only have one more week in God's decrees. And then we're going to go into a new subject. But next week, we'll finish up this subject. And we'll finish up Romans 9 seeing about how God is the one who is in control. God is the one who has mercy on who he has mercy on. And God judges all, does he not? Everyone's under God's judgment, and it's only through the mercy of his giving of his son that you and I are not under the condemnation of his wrath anymore. Father, thank you for this time we've had together. You are a good God and a merciful God and a loving God and a God who does as he pleases. Our prayer is that you will continue to work in our lives to help us to appreciate and grow in our understanding of what your mercy is really about. Uh, Help us to live our lives thankful that we are no longer under your wrath and your judgment and thankful that we can come to you and know you um, and be called your beloved, to be called your children. And Lord, we pray that as you send us out of here this week, that you will remind us of our responsibility to share your love and to share your truth with others as you have seen fit to share with us. In Christ Jesus name we pray. Amen.